any church, there's a mixture of kind of people, the state of their their souls. Um, basically, it comes down to two. You have in a church, uh, ordinarily, you have those who are saved, and you have those who are not. And um, so sometimes you speak to just the saved, or you address them on Sunday morning, and you say, we we Christians, we believers, we, 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 and yet you know that in the midst are those who are not born again at this point. You hope everyone you're looking out at across your audience, however small, if not born again, will one day be born again. But of course, no one knows that but God. In any case, it's important at times to uh, clarify the message for each group. So one of the things that a, a pastor and a theologian from a long time ago in the 1600s, his name was John Owen, said is that the burden of preaching was to convince those who are Christians that they are and to convince those who are not that they're not. And in convincing them that they're not, of course the goal is that they would be shaken out of a false sense of security and comfort and uh, not rely on things they may be relying on for salvation, things they shouldn't, in fact, be relying on. So uh, it's uh, important to know which, which group that you're in. So tonight, um, I want to talk a little bit about seeking the Lord and what to do if you're not yet born again. Uh, sometimes you have in churches people that you know, they may think that they're Christians and then through processes of learning what it means to be saved, they come to the understanding, you know, I'm, I'm really not. That happened to me. Um, when I was 12 years old, I got concerned about going to hell. So I did what the church said you're supposed to do. I prayed to ask Jesus in my heart. I walked down an aisle on a Sunday morning service. I um, got baptized and then I tried to be a good boy. And that lasted for a couple of months, and then I pretty much drifted right back into the world and the other boys, and I began talking like they talked again, and just the same person that I was before, I just had a momentary vacation from that while I tried to be a good boy. And uh, that was worldly, nothing really changed about my life and my heart and anything like that. I couldn't have explained to you really the gospel and what it is and what it means and... Uh, really why I needed Jesus Christ. I, I knew nothing about why it was important that he live a perfect life. I knew nothing about why it was important. I, I knew why he died, sort of. Um, but I didn't really know what happened with respect to what happens when a person's saved. And I didn't know anything about being a new creature in Christ and what would then be expected if I was indeed a new creature, how my life might change. And so I want to make that clear uh, and not um, have that be a mystery. So uh, there's these things of, you know, what do you do? When you, when you are reared up in a more, what we would call, reformed uh, theology church or Calvinistic or whatever, you're, you're a smaller group than the, than the broader uh, you know, professing Christian church. Um, you believe certain things that other people don't believe. And in fact, you believe certain things that other people don't like at all. 
And one of the things that you believe is that Jesus didn't actually die for everyone. In the sense that his death is not a substitution for every single person in the world. And there's a reason for that is because if Jesus died in the place of every single person in the world out here, I mean everybody you see, Jesus died for every one of them. Meaning he went to the cross and he suffered the punishment from God that is deserved for every single person in the world and he paid the price for them he paid their debt, then everybody you see is walking around debt-free. Their punishment has been paid. Jesus suffered all of it. And so then the question is, well, then why are they going to hell if Jesus already paid for their punishment? And a lot of people say things like, well, because they haven't accepted it yet. Well, is accepting it a sin? Um, or, I mean, is not accepting it a sin? Yeah, that's a sin. Okay, did Jesus die for that sin? Uh, well, if he died for that sin, why would I be punished for that one either? You know, so you sort of have a problem. So as in a Reformed church, we don't believe that Jesus died for everyone and suffered the punishment for everybody in the entire world and their sins. Um, we believe that he died for his sheep. He laid down his life for the sheep. Well, that makes a lot of people uncomfortable. Because then it becomes, then salvation is really out of my hands. Because if Jesus died for me, and then I only have to do something, all I have to do is say, yeah, I'll take it. Um, I raise my hand. Um, or what prayer did you want me to say? Okay, I'll say the prayer. Um, you want me to walk down an aisle and sign a card? I can do that. Yeah. And you're saying that if I do that, I'll get heaven, right? Uh, well, now, if you're talking about, no, Jesus didn't die for everybody like that, the ball is not in your court in that respect. It's not just a matter of making a decision to make this death of Jesus real for you. It's not just a matter of accepting something that's just kind of laying out there for you to grab, if you'll just grab it. And it's about God doing a special work in, in your heart then it becomes a little bit more difficult. Then it becomes an issue of how do I know if he's done the work in my heart? Then it becomes not an issue of did I accept Jesus? I don't know, does it say so in my Bible? Is there somewhere in the front where I mark down there? Yes, on such and such a day on March, I don't know, 13th, 19th, whatever, I accepted Jesus in my heart, signed my name, there it is. Yeah, so I'm saved because it says so right here. No, it's, it's a lot more complicated than that. It becomes a matter of has God changed me and that becomes a little bit more uncomfortable and you can see that's one of the reasons why people don't like this but this is why it's a little harder in reformed church settings to discern am I really a Christian or am I not because it's not a matter of well have you done this or have you done that it's about has he done something and that is going to be a little more complicated or complex or it's going to be something that I have to look for. What, what does his work look like in a person then? When God saves a sinner, what does it look like? And do I look like that? And one of the biggest challenges for us and for children, and that's your primary who I'm talking to today, is the children, the young people in the church, 
Um, one of the biggest challenges is when you're raised in a Christian home, you're in church from the beginning. A lot of decisions are made for you. A lot of choices are made for you. And that's, that's just the way it should be. Uh, your parents bring you to church. They bring you to things. Maybe they have family worship at home. Uh, maybe you say your prayers at night before you go to bed. You might learn hymns. You might memorize scriptures. And you are very different than the rest of the world out there. Most of the children that we would go find if we went out to the public school here and we gathered up most of those children, they wouldn't look like that. They would be coming from homes where they're not having family worship. They're not memorizing the Bible. They don't know hymns. They probably go to church somewhere, but a very different church. And they probably dress quite a bit differently and they probably listen to different kinds of music. They probably watch things on television that your folks won't let you watch. Um, if you have TV at all, which I don't think anybody here does. <laughs> um, and so there's this difference between the way you look and the way they look. And then you come to church and it's taught we, we Christians and we um, believers and we thank you, Lord, for your saving work in our lives. And that we starts to sound like well, that's just everybody here, no questions asked. So that's why it's really important where we have to occasionally get a little uncomfortable and say things like, you know, you're, you're not born a Christian. It's, uh, you have to be born again. And so you don't become a Christian by virtue of at the womb. When you come out of your mother's womb... You know, at the hospital or the birth center or wherever, you don't come out and they stamp you as a Christian and you're a Christian from that point on. It doesn't work that way. What we are born as is sinners, wretches, uh, rebels, uh, people that don't like God, don't love Him. We're at enmity with Him. We don't want to do what He says. We don't want to live His life. And then if I'm raised in a Christian home, what happens is I'm... I'm that kind of a person. I don't like God. I don't want to follow His commandments. I don't love His Word. I don't read it. I don't pray. But my parents bring me to church and we say prayers together and they pray and I pray with them and we learn hymns and we, we act differently than the majority of other children out there and so we are different than them. And that can all work in a very negative way to persuade us, to help us self-deceive and make us think that we're, we're already there. We're already Christians when we're not. And so what really must happen is to be born again, not just be born. And then what is that? What does it actually mean to be born again? Um, it's something more than being born. And is something spiritual. It's the Holy Spirit coming down, descending, coming into me, and then making me like Jesus. And that is something that God is in charge of, not me. He's in control of that. We need to understand that the scripture says here, this is actually near the area where Nathan read earlier today, but uh, maybe the exact same verse actually. Isaiah 55, 6-7 Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. 
Well, that suggests that God is not just always around or that I've just got all the time in the world, that there's no hurry, no rush. I, don't, I can seek the Lord later. Right now I'll have fun uh, while I'm young and when I'm an old man and can't do anything, maybe I'm stuck in a wheelchair and I can't do anything else anyway, um, then I'll seek the Lord. Now, seek the Lord while He may be found, meaning there, there's a time when He's not. Uh, call upon Him while He is near. But what about if He's someday not near? So, that's a warning to us. We can't just assume that God is like a butler. If I had that little bell that Abby rings at the top of the stairs, we could you know, ring the bell and then God would come running. And every time I rang the bell, Oh God, ding a ding a ding a ding come here. It's, uh, I would like to be saved now. I, God is not a butler. He's not somebody or maid that I can just say, Oh, yoo-hoo, it's time. And, and make Him come here and save me. Uh, seek Him while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. Let the wicked forsake His way and the unrighteous man His thoughts. How do you forsake your thoughts? Uh, you have to be changed. You're going to need help for that. Let him return to the Lord and he will have compassion on him. There is the good news. There's the encouragement. For he will abundantly pardon. So what we want to get at tonight here in just a brief time we'll spend together is if God is in control of salvation, is there anything I can do? Or am I just do I just twiddle my thumbs waiting? You know, do I just basically say, well, I don't know. I guess if the Lord wants to save me, He'll save me. And I don't know if I'm elect or not, so maybe it's just never going to happen. I don't know. So there's really not any point in doing anything. Um, that's really not what the Bible says. Um, so what do you do? Uh, if you're supposed to repent of your sin, meaning you hate it and forsake it, what do you do if you can't repent? You know, what are you supposed to do? Like if someone said to you, repent of that love of chocolate that you have, uh, could you do that? Could you just go, okay, now, I hate chocolate now. Would it be that simple? No, because you love it, and I do too. And anything that you really love, you can't just simply go, okay, now I'm going to decide to start hating what I've always loved. And now I'm going to start loving what I've always hated. You know, I don't like cooked spinach. Sorry if that is your favorite dish or anything, but I, I just never have. Um, it almost makes me gag. Uh, I cannot make my taste buds like that. I can make myself eat it. <laughs> I mean, I can, I can force it down there and chase it down with something real quick. But I can't make myself love it. And in the same way, if I don't really love God, I can't make myself love Him. And if I love sin, if I love me, and I'm all about me, and I'm very self-centered, I can't make myself just not be by snapping my fingers or just making a decision at one moment to do it. So then, so the question is, what do you do then? How are you supposed to repent if you can't repent? How are you supposed to love the Lord if you don't? And what does it mean to seek the Lord? So let's consider a few things that you should know 
And then we'll talk about a few things that you should do and not do um, as you're seeking the Lord. And I hope that you are. Um, the last time we had an evangelistic service, I talked about hell. You might remember I read from the famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And the purpose of that sermon is to make people wide awake. It's to like smelling salts. You know? um, okay, I'm awake. Um, that's what Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God does. And uh, you may still not be awake yet, but I hope you are. And this, this is for people who are awake. This is like, okay, I'm awake. Uh, the consequences of not being right with the Lord, the consequences of not being reconciled to Him and being at peace with Him are dreadful, just awful, unbearable. And yet that's my future as long as I am outside of Christ. So I'm awake. Now what? What do I do now? Uh, tonight is about, well, what do you do now? Well, first of all, things you should know. You cannot know whether you're elect or not. You can't know if you are chosen by God to be saved. That's a secret that God has in the Lamb's Book of Life, and no one gets to peek at that book until they're in heaven, I guess. Nobody knows. So, it cannot be the basis for your instructions. It can't be the basis for what you're supposed to do and not do. You can't get a peek at the book and go, oh yeah, I'm in there, okay, I'll seek the Lord then. Or, no, I don't find my name there. No, forget it, I might as well just live for sin then because that's my future's hell anyway. Might as well enjoy this life as best I can. Or, you know, I might as well just end it now. Well, it can't be the basis of your decisions because you can't know that information. God doesn't expect you to know that information. He's not going to share that information. The passage says, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. He doesn't say, if your name is written in the Lamb's book of life, then seek the Lord, because then it will be worthwhile for you. He doesn't say that. He nowhere instructs us that way. You can't know whether Jesus died for you in particularly. So that can't be the basis of your faith. You can't say, well, you know, like a preacher might say, Jesus died for you. Do you believe that? And you say, yeah, I believe it. Okay, you're saved then. That's not what is meant by the gospel and what it means to believe the gospel. You can't know whether Jesus died for you or not, and it can't be the basis of your faith. What you are to believe in is that the blood of Jesus Christ is sufficient to make you, a sinner, white as snow and to wash away all your sins. You don't concern yourself. Did Jesus die for me in particular, though? No, that's not your concern. That you can't be expected to know that, and therefore you can't be expected to believe it. What you believe is what the Scripture says, is that He is able to save to the uttermost everyone who comes to God through Him. That's Hebrews 7.25. He is able to save all who come to Him. And that includes you. He is able to save you. And His blood is so precious in the sight of God and so virtuous that it can wash away all the black stains of your sin, no problem whatsoever. That is what you are to believe. You are to believe that Jesus is willing to save anyone who comes to Him. Um, Matthew 8, 1-3 seems to be written for those who say, well, I know He can save me, I just don't know that He wants to. Well, 
there was a, a man who had leprosy, you know, this skin disease that was awful and it made you so you couldn't uh, interact with people and you had to be uh, sheltering in place and you had to be, um, so, you know, quarantined and in lockdown all the time and, you know, I mean, it was about like having COVID. Matthew 8, 1 through 3, Jesus came down from the mountain, large crowds followed him, and a leper came to him and bowed down before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. Now, lepers would ceremonially, at least, defile anything they touched. So leprosy, a leper touches things, now you've got to cleanse it. If I had leprosy, in the Old Testament system, if I had leprosy and I touched this podium, uh-oh, now that's defiled. I just communicated my leprosy to the podium. Now we have to do a cleansing thing with the podium. If I go touch you, well, now you're unclean. So that's why I have to stay away from everybody and, you know, cover my mouth and say, unclean, unclean, and make sure everybody clears the way so I don't defile anybody. Well, here's Jesus touching the leper. Yet, who's, who changed whom? Did Jesus become defiled by the leper? No, the leper was cleansed by Jesus. Jesus has more cleansing power and virtue in him than you have defiling power in your sin. And he is willing. He was willing. The question was asked. I know you can't. If you're willing... You can make me clean. I know you can. It's just a matter of if you're willing. And what did he say to him? I am willing. Jesus came to call sinners to repentance. He gave invitations to those who are heavy and weary laden. And think about being heavy with sin, weary laden with sin. Who's read Pilgrim's Progress here? Or had it read to you? Yeah? So a Christian has this huge burden on his back, right? And what does that burden represent? Sin, Sin right. It's, certain, it's bothering him. It's weighing him down. And that's his big problem. He's got to get rid of that somehow. And where did he get rid of it? Cross. At the cross, right. At the cross of Jesus. That's where sin is taken away, taken care of. Um, Jesus said things like, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink, and I will give him water that will be like a well springing up inside of him and he'll never thirst, referring to the Holy Spirit. Um, you cannot find an example in the, in the New Testament, in the, in the Gospels, think of this. Can you think of an instance, any time, where someone came to Jesus for mercy, heal my leprosy, heal my daughter, my demon-possessed son, they keep throwing him in the fire and in the water. Um, I can't... Uh, somebody who's mute, somebody who's deaf, somebody who's lame, somebody who's a paralytic, um, somebody who is uh, got whatever problem that they had. And you think of an example where anybody came up to him and he said, no, I'm not helping you. The Canaanite woman, did he help her though? He didn't help her? He did, right. But yeah, you're right. When she came to him, she said, my, my daughter is cruelly 
demon-possessed, and he was putting her off. He was ignoring her. And she kept after it, and he was like, it's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. I'm like, wow, that's tough language. Um, that sounds like a no. In fact, it sounds like a hard no, doesn't it? But she, what was her response? Her response was, yes, Lord, but even the dogs get the crumbs under the table. And he said, woman, because of your faith, uh, your daughter is healed. And so even she got mercy. It wasn't really a rejection, was it? It looked like one. It sounded like one. It didn't look very promising. And that's something you need to keep in mind. You may pray to the Lord to save you and get nothing. You may hear nothing. Usually you don't hear anything. But you may just get no response. You may just be like, I don't know if he heard me or not. I... I, I don't feel any different. Nothing happened. I seem to be the same person I was before. And yet, what we know from an instance like this is that Jesus sometimes seems to be disinterested. Sometimes the, the answer seems to be no. He's testing you. Just like he was that Canaanite woman. He wants to see, are you? how much do you want this? Do you really want to be saved? How important is it to you? How long are you willing to seek me for this? Time is short. This is some another thing you need to know. You're young and it's, boy, it's hard to believe this. Time is short. It's really hard to believe this. You just, you're like, you know, I'm not an old man. I'm not an old woman. I got my whole life before me. I mean, death is the farthest thing off for me. I, I won't die for a long, long, long time. Nobody knows that actually though, Right? I mean, we do know of people. I'm not trying to scare you. I'm just trying to be honest with you that nobody knows for sure how long of a life they have. You know, right out in front of the church here a few years ago, I was in my office there and I heard this loud sound. Well, what was that? Uh, but I didn't get up and check anything. I just couldn't figure out what it was. It was just loud noise um, outside. And then all of a sudden I started to notice that the traffic was slowing down on the highway. I could see cars lined up along the highway out there. I was like, you know what that's going on here? Um, so I walked out of my office. I went outside. I went out, looked out the window. The, I heard sirens too by that point. There, the ambulance was out there. There was police cars. There was a car that was mangled. And there, were, there was somebody out on the pavement. It was January. It was freezing cold. They had somebody out on the pavement they were giving CPR to, and then there was two people in the back of a car that they couldn't yet get out. And uh, uh, a young girl of the age of 14, 15 years old, um, and a boy from China both died that day. He was probably 15 or 16. And they were getting ready to turn into this business right here to pick up their dad uh, from work. Across the, across the way and uh, as they were getting ready to turn behind them was another person in a truck and she was approaching fast on them but she was looking in her rear view mirror at a semi that was bearing down on her so she was kind of distracted by the semi behind her and she just missed the fact that this car in front of her was stopped at the middle of the road trying to turn and bashed right into the rear end of them and uh, killed 
those two people in the back. Uh, that was not on their plans that day. They hadn't planned that. It was very sad. But that, that can happen. It can happen much earlier. We don't know how much time we have. So from the very earliest days of where you're, you're even thinking about these things at all, now is the time to be seeking. For whatever reason, children generally don't start taking that seriously until they're around 12 or 13. I don't know why that is, but it's pretty common. And it may have something to do with just the development of the mind and the conscience and the sense of, you know, life and the soul and afterlife. Things start to, you know, compute. Children start to think about these things and things start to kind of come together maybe. But it can happen much earlier. There's an amazing story in, uh, in Jonathan Edwards, you know, who, who did that sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And the little girl's name is Phoebe Bartlett. And I would recommend you to read that if you can. I can loan it to you if you'd like. And she's four years old. And she knows her catechism front and back already at age four. And she's weeping about her sin. And she's concerned about being saved. And her parents weren't giving her any quick fixes. They were just encouraging her to pray. And she went from being very agitated and concerned and burdened about her sins to having peace and joy. And she continued on for many years as, as uh, became a young you know, girl of seven, eight, nine, became a young teenage girl, became an adult woman, and they, they were able to see this. Now, this was a genuine work of God in her life. But they were all amazed because it was so unusual, so uncommon for a girl of that age, any child of that age, to be concerned about their soul. Um, but this, this text, Isaiah 55, 67, tells us that now is the time. Not, not later, not someday, now. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. James 4, 13 through 17, you know, come now you who say today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit, yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Oh, God tests the faith of those who call on Him. You might remember this morning me reading from Luke 11, 5-13. Do you remember me reading about the guy that comes at midnight and he starts knocking at the door? And he wants bread? Hey, um, friend, I have a friend with me who came from a journey and he needs food and I don't have any. I, I want some bread. And this his friend says to him, I'm in bed, and my children are with me, and basically, I don't want to get up and go away, is <laughs> essentially the, the, uh, the essence of his response. Beat it. <laughs> you know, it's midnight. Um, I'm in bed. Can't help you. And he just doesn't quit. He just keeps knocking. Well, you know, if somebody comes to your door at night to your house and you cannot get away from the sound you can't turn your sound machine up high enough to block it out um, <laughs> then you're probably going to go to that door 
and you're going to just to get them to shut up. And so you're going to go open that door. And that story, amazingly, is told to us by Jesus to encourage us to pray and to seek and to ask and to knock and to keep knocking with God. And the idea is that if you keep doing this with God, eventually he's going to get up, get up and come and open the door. Knock, and it shall be opened to you. I didn't make up that story. I didn't make up that analogy and that metaphor of knocking. Jesus gave that to us. He's the one who told us. And at the end, he said, you know, if your father knows how to give good gifts to you, you know, you ask him for a piece of bread. He doesn't give you a stone instead of a piece of bread and then laugh at you. Let's see you take a bite out of that. <laughs> yeah, he doesn't do that. If you ask for an egg, he doesn't give you a scorpion. Here, here's your egg. Whoa! Go um, let it bite you. He doesn't do that. No, he gives you what you need. He's, he's happy to give you good gifts that he sees that you need. Now, if you're like one of these spoiled children who's always asking for things that are not good for you, you know, maybe you want your, you know, fifth candy bar of the day. Uh, dad will probably say no <laughs> or mom will um, it might not get to five even it might not be one I don't know but you know it, the point is is that yeah he'll say no but that will also be for your good he doesn't want your teeth rotting out and you not being interested in supper and having something nutritious and so forth so if you come to your own father and say can I have this good thing he's not going to give you a bad thing in place of it and Jesus' point is, is that God the Father is so much better, he's so much more good than our earthly fathers are. He's not going to do that either. And he will give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. That's the kind of thing that you are to think about, not am I elect or not? Or is my name in the Lamb's Book of Life or not? You just don't know. You can't know that. But you can know that he says to seek and ask and knock and gives a promise to those who do. You need to know this. Your motivations, until you are saved, your motivations are always going to be selfish. Uh, wanting to get out of hell is a selfish thing, but it's an understandable thing. And it's all you've got. You should do things for the love of God and for the glory of God. Everything that you do, you should do it because you want to honor him. But you know what? Until you're a Christian, until you've been changed by God, it's never that. It's always just about you. But God knows this. He knows what you're capable of and what you're not capable of. When He says to seek Him, even though you're dead in sin and lost and you don't love God and you're not doing things for His glory like you should, He knows this. He knows that's all you can do. God doesn't expect something of you that you can't produce. See, when sometimes when we talk about God's law, that He doesn't lower His standards, you know, the standard is love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, and all of your strength. That's the standard. And God's not going to lower that down here and say, okay, I see you can't do that, but I really want you to pass this test so we're going to lower it way down here 
And we'll just say, just love me once. Will you? And they go, oh, I can do that. I'll step over that one. You know, like those limbo bars that they hold out. and You know, you can, you can go under when it's like this, but way down there you can't. God's not going to lower his standards in that respect. But what I'm trying to say here is, is that he's not going to expect something of you that you can't on your own provide. Don't let your selfishness be uh, something that you think will keep you out of the kingdom. You are expected to not want to burn forever in hell. And all you've got is the selfish desire to escape that. But God knows that. Okay, those are some things to know. Let's look at a few things to do. If you're earnest, you're sincere, you're, you're serious about seeking God for salvation, then there's certain things that should change. Number one is you, do, you have to stop pretending to be a Christian if that's what you're doing. You can't pretend to be one before you are one. A lot of times the first things that people need to do before they're saved is to get unsaved. They need to quit playing the game. They need to quit trying to take a shortcut and be treated as Christian even though there's no evidence that they are. Um, if you made a profession of faith in the past, but you know it was a false profession, come clean. Admit that you're not. Tell your family. Tell your parents. Ask them to pray for your salvation. Be prepared. Um, this would apply generally, I think, elsewhere. But, you know, let's say that somebody was hearing this and they're in a church somewhere and the pastor has heard their profession of faith and accepted it just kind of at face value. But here you have a young person, a young boy or a young girl, and they're like, I, I'm listening to you now and I'm not, a, I'm not really a Christian. And so then they go and they try to tell their pastor that, no, I, I'm, I'm not actually a Christian. I was pretending and I know that I'm not. That pastor may be irritated. He may not want to hear this. He may say things like, oh, come on now. Um, you're being too hard on yourself and try to talk you out of it. And it may be more about him and his own uh, irritation that he was fooled than it is actually your soul. So you have to be prepared for things like that. Um, if you're older and you're in a position where you're teaching a Bible study, stop teaching immediately if you're not saved. Unbelievers should not be teaching the Bible. It's only going to deceive you further if you keep teaching the Bible. No, Everyone thinks you're a Christian and you're playing along, you're playing a game. And you shouldn't be teaching that. You should be on the other end, listening, not teaching. You shouldn't be the fountain of information to people. You shouldn't go around acting like you're wise and like you're the one, the go-to guy. And the people should seek you for answers. You need answers. You should be the one seeking, not the one giving and distributing and coming from a position of strength and, and knowledge. Uh, many people will conclude that you're a Christian. They'll give you the benefit of the doubt. But it's up to you to go forth and say, no, I, I'm not. Please pray for me. So unless and until you're a Christian, don't present yourself as one. Don't call yourself one. It will only deceive others and you will only deceive yourself. Be careful about public prayer. In general, avoid it. Even the best of public prayers are fraught with difficulty. 
There is danger for me as the pastor of this church in public prayer. There is always the danger of that I'm just going to get up here and I'm going to be talking to you, all you guys, but I'm not actually talking to God. There's the danger that I'm going to be performing for you and trying to sound really spiritual for you, to impress you, but that I'm not actually talking to God as a humble beggar sinner before God and well, yeah, you guys are here, but that's really not what's important. Really, it's I'm talking to God. But if you don't know the Lord, you need to be really careful about that. It's not inherently wrong to pray publicly at corporate prayer meetings, but it is fraught with temptations and the devil is shrewd. So if you do not know the Lord and you want to pray publicly, I have to think, well, why, why do I want to pray publicly if I don't know the Lord? Am I just trying to impress other people? Then you should probably begin like, Lord, uh, you know I don't yet know you. Please, please save me. But I am thinking about this friend of mine who has this problem, and I pray that you would help her. And then just let your words be few. Don't say a lot. Otherwise, it's self-deception. So pretending is one of the biggest dangers that there is. It's one of the, the biggest problems. When you're raised up in a Christian home, it's very easy just to slide into sort of Christianity. I'm, I'm a Christian. Without ever going through this process of, wait a minute, I'm, I'm lost. I'm dead in sin. I'm an enemy of God. This is what the Bible calls me. Yes, I'm raised in a Christian home. Yes, my life is different because of that in some outward ways. Yes, my parents protect me from certain things that other parents don't protect their children from. But that's not being born again. And we learn how to pray. And I hear my parents' prayer. And kids are imitators, right? We, we can imitate stuff. We hear people talk a certain way and we start talking talk like that. And we, we start imitating them. You know, and you can imitate people's prayers too. You can say, okay, how does, I, I see how they do it. I see the words that they use. I, I can do that. I can pray with the same kind of tone. I can use the same kind of terms that I hear my dad using. I hear, I can use the same kinds of vocabulary words and, and terms to form a prayer. And I can sound just like him. Be careful. Be careful about that. Stop throwing rocks at God. According to Scripture, this is another thing to do. According to Scripture, before we know the Lord, and this was certainly the case with me, so I'm, you know, it's just a case for everybody. I just want to make sure you know it was for me too. We're at enmity with God. We don't like Him and we're throwing rocks at Him. Um, in, in a way, not literally rocks. But you have to put down your rocks. Your enemy will never be will never take you seriously as though you want to cease fire. He'll never take you seriously as long as you're throwing rocks. Um, Lord, I want you to save me. You know, um, throw another rock. He's never going to take you seriously. Is God supposed to believe that you want to be reconciled to Him while you're throwing rocks? Examples of rock throwing are openly quarreling about His Word undermining biblical teaching to other people, complaining about the way God has ordered your life, complaining about the fact that He hasn't saved you yet, um, 
older, if you were older, we'd talk about fornication, skipping church, uh, drunkenness, all, you know, all these kinds of things, these behaviors. They're ways of throwing rocks at God. Idolatry is enmity with God, according to the Bible. James 4, 4 says, You adulteresses do not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God. So if I'm friends with the world, I'm hostile toward God. That's what it says. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. You know, if while I was trying to win Catherine to hopefully be my wife, if I was going around and flirting with all sorts of other girls, would she take me seriously that I really wanted her? Or would she look and go, doesn't look like you want me. Looks like you just want somebody. Or maybe you want several people. Maybe you want several girls to show interest in you. I'm just one of them. So I need to quit flirting with the world and not uh, be pursuing after lots of other idols while I'm seeking the Lord. What do you give your heart to? What consumes your time, your money, your energy? As children, you know, you've only got so much to work with, but there's, there's, you can make an idol out of anything. I mean, you can make an idol out of a game. You can make an idol out of a hobby. What do you give your heart to? Um, in the Old Testament, there were times when they were told to put away the foreign gods that were amongst you. You want to get serious about serving the Lord? Put away your foreign gods. Put it away. Repent of outward sins. Correct any wrongs that you can. You can't change your heart. You can't make your heart love God. We've talked about that. But, you know, if you've stolen something from someone else, return it. If you've lied about something, confess that it's a lie. Come clean. You can actually do that. If there's something that you know you should stop doing, stop doing it. If there's something you know you should be doing, start doing it. If you know you should be reading the Bible, well, read it. If you know how to read and you've gotten through reading lessons enough to where you can read, then you can read the Bible. You have that ability. Why aren't you reading it? If you're young and you're under your parents' authority, ask your parents if there's anything they think you should correct, any issues that you are showing that they have been concerned about for you. If they tell you that you're not very helpful around the house, then ask their forgiveness and start helping around the house. If they tell you that you're argumentative and you're always arguing, then stop the quarreling. You know, we can keep our mouths shut. You come into a place where suddenly everybody's, like you walk into church maybe on Sunday morning and the church is already going and everybody's quiet and they're in prayer. Suddenly you walk in, you're quiet. See, you can be quiet. It's possible. You have that power over your mouth. So we're not suggesting that you can change the hatred in your heart toward God, but you can stop the outward motions of your enemy. Uh, quit firing away at God. Quit throwing rocks. Uh, when one army surrenders to another, it is not usually because they love their conquering enemy, but it's due to the fact that the war is lost and that those who put down their weapons are usually treated nicer than those who keep shooting. And that's 
the way you should really deal with God. This is a war with him you can't win, but you need to put down your weapons. If someone, if I'm a big mouth and I'm always talking, blah, 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 and someone comes up and puts a gun to my head and says, shut up. I bet I could learn to shut up. I bet I could quit talking. I just need to be motivated, don't I? Uh, given the right amount of motivation, I can actually be quiet. I can zip my lip. And what I'm getting at here is that there are certain things that we can stop doing and should stop doing that are aspects of enmity with God. They're like throwing rocks at him that we should stop, even though our heart is not yet changed. Um, divorce the world. Um, write a certificate of divorce out to the world. If you have worldly friends, lose them. They don't want to do anything but pull you into the mire in which they wallow. They don't want you to leave, but you have to leave them. If they are content to go to hell and they want you to join them, they're not your friends, are they? Ditch them and expect them to mock you as, they, as you do. Think about Samson and Delilah. He wasn't very smart, was he? Just keeps hanging around Delilah. And he's already seen, he already has proof that she's not got his interests at heart. That she's not trying to help him and be assist him. She's trying to capture him. And he knows it. And he keeps flirting with her. He keeps hanging around with Delilah. Keeps consorting with Delilah. And we know how that ended in the end, right? He lost. You have to put away the Delilahs of your life. Confess your sins. Here's another thing to do. Confess your sins. Think about ways you've sinned. Confess things to the Lord that you need to confess to Him, but also to other people, to your parents, to your siblings, teachers, employers, whatever. Humble yourself, confess your sins, ask their forgiveness. And be prepared. Sometimes when you ask people for forgiveness, they actually turn it against you. They're like, well, yeah, about time you finally confess to that. You jerk. You know, I mean, some people do that. That can't be your concern. Your concern has to be you. Not how they respond to you. Not even whether they say, I forgive you. Just that you just need to do it. You need to be resolved to not argue with them. If you come to confess something... And then they say something back that wasn't very nice. Don't get drug into an argument now. And start then now defending yourself. If you're defending yourself, you're not really apologizing. There are certain things you don't need to confess to people. Like, don't come up to people and say, I just want you to know I've always hated your guts. Um, like, you're the, you're, you bother me more than I think anybody else in this world bothers me. And that's, uh, I just really had issues with you. Uh, don't confess things like that to people. They don't need to know that. Um, you know, you can just say, you know, I, I haven't treated you well. Something like that. Or I haven't been kind to you. And I haven't spoken kindly to you. But don't say things like, yeah, I, I think you're the worst person I've ever met. And I've just hated your guts. And uh, please forgive me. <laughs> That's a little TMI. 
Pray for salvation. This is the another thing to do. And this is in a booklet. You can take these are back there on the, the little book stand. You're welcome to take these home with you and go through these and look more in depth. I'm skimming over some things here, but you may be thinking, I don't know, what did he say now? Just take it home with you, and then you can look at it. Um, pray for salvation. Um, that's kind of obvious, but, you know, remember your prayers don't have to be long. We have warnings in the Bible about praying too long. We don't have, war- we don't have warnings about praying too short. Um, we don't want to engage in meaningless repetition like the Gentiles, but on the other hand, prayer is going to be repetitious to some degree. You know, when we're talking about meaningless repetition, we're thinking of like the rosary. Um, Hail, Mary, Mother of Grace, blah, 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 blah. I don't know how it goes, actually, but it's just repeated over and over and over again. Buddhists have a mantra that they repeat over and over and over again. And they think they'll be heard because they of their many prayers, because they repeat it X number of times. That's the way the unbelieving mind thinks of. But Jesus says, no, let your words be few. Um, says that in Ecclesiastes. And he warns about long prayers, not about short ones. And But know that you're going to be saying things, there's only so many different ways you can come up with to say, please save me. God is not expecting you to come up with these dramatically creative ways every day that you say it to come up with new ways to say save me. But it's, it's frustrating. It's frustrating because you feel it's boring and you feel like I'm saying the same thing I said yesterday. What's there new to say? But don't be discouraged by that. God knows that it's going to be repetitious just like knocking is repetitious. You know, knocking at the door. He says, knock and I'll be open to you. Well, this is repetitious, isn't it? There's nothing creative about that. I don't need to go... come up with a new rhythm the next day and so forth. I don't need to do that. God doesn't expect me to do that. Read the Bible. I talked about that. This is simple. It's kind of obvious. But in Romans 10 17, Paul says faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. So we need to hear this and to hear it, read it. And it's challenging. You should pray before you read it because the devil is going to come. He does this with me. You start to read and all of a sudden your mind is daydreaming about this and that and this over here. and That's not an accident. That's spiritual warfare. That's, I believe it is, the devil. So pray, Lord, help me to read this. Help me to understand it. Help me to get stuff out of it. Speak to me through this. Don't let me get distracted. You should pray that before you read. Don't try to read huge, long uh, passages of scripture at a time you're, you don't want to make this harder than it already is there's enough challenges as it is with this uh, don't bite off more than you can chew you know what I mean um, you may need to just go with one chapter a day at first you know, and then maybe later you can build up to more than that or if there's certain days where you're like no I'm really, I've got to keep reading great but don't try to um, impress God. Don't try to impress other people. Just try to take a little bit and think about what it's saying. Ask yourself questions as you read the Bible that will help. Like, rather than just reading a passage of Scripture and, okay, I read it, check. Read it with a certain thing in mind. Like, what does this tell me about God? 
What is that passage? What is, what is Psalm 35 tell me about God? What kinds of things can I see in this passage about God? What does it tell me about me as a human being or as a sinner? Is there something about Christ that I might see in this passage that it might tell me about Jesus as well? Is there something I should do that it tells me to do? So with that in mind, um, attend church. And of course, when you're young and your parents are bringing you there anyway, it's not like you get a choice, right? They just bring you to church. They don't ask you if you want to go. I remember asking my mom when I was a kid, I don't know what age it was, do I have to go to church? And she said, yes. Okay. (laughs) So I went to church. But I didn't want to. I wanted to stay home and watch TV. But as you get older and maybe you grow up, you know, beware of, uh, and hopefully you found the Lord by then. But just to speak to even people that are older, we only get 52 Sundays a year. That's really not a lot of, of God to ask us for. And beware of the tendency to nibble away at them. You know, it's just one Sunday. Just one Sunday for 4-H. It's just one Sunday for the, whatever, philanthropic club. It's just one Sunday for the Red Hat Society. It's, whatever. I mean, the devil is trying to nibble away from the outsides and, and get it narrower and narrower and narrower until there's nothing left. So you have to defend it. It has to be important. Um, be on the alert for Satan and we'll close with this the Bible says in 1 Peter 5 8, be of sober spirit be on the alert your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour so that's serious stuff that's it's not a laughing matter he's a roaring lion he doesn't like you he's not going to help you seek God He's not going to say, oh, I see this young man here wants to see God. I'll see what I can do to help him out. Oh, he'll help you out. Yeah, he'll help, he'll help derail the whole thing. I have had people come to church, and they came in here, and they sat down. People I didn't know at all, and I still don't know them. But they came as visitors, and, you know, I'm not a pastor that goes to the door and makes people get past me to get to their car um, you know. <laughs> you're going to have to shake my hand and talk to me um, now I'm not saying that's why all pastors do that they can just be friendly and just wanting to greet people so I'm just saying I, I don't I'm not back there and if people want to escape quickly they can <laughs> without me you know running them down so I mean, I've had people that have come into the church and they've, they've come up to me and said, that was a really good sermon. Oh, that was just really spoke to me. And I really feel like I found my church. I'll see you next Sunday. And, and I'm like, okay, wow. Um, and then they're not, I never see them again. And I was like, what was that? I mean, is that just a total lie? Um, I didn't make you say that to me. You know, I wasn't like at the door going, <laughs> you got to see you next Sunday, right? And then, like, they felt they had to say it. It wasn't like that. They, they sought me out to say it. I think, actually, what happened was they really thought that they would be back. I think they really thought that, yeah, they were, this is, that there was something here they heard that resonated, and they, 
They thought, yeah, I, this is where I want to be. This is what I've been looking for. But they have no idea what they're into. They have no idea what they're getting into. They have no idea who they're tangling with. The devil is still in control of their life, and he is it's not going to happen. He's just laughing. Oh, we'll see whether you're here next Sunday or not. And the next Sunday, they're sick. Or the next Sunday, I don't know, somebody from the family calls. Hey, you know, I really need you to do such and such. Or the next Sunday, something happens that they had not anticipated. And then they, they don't come that Sunday. And then one more Sunday, oh, no, something happened then too. And then pretty soon they're out of the habit already. They didn't even start a habit. And now they're embarrassed. I don't know. I'm just trying to put myself in their thinking. Now maybe they're embarrassed. I said I was going to be back on it, and now the guy's going to think I'm an idiot. I just think it's the devil. He snatches the word out of people's hearts. And so we have to be on the alert. That's what it says. Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Don't expect this to be easy. If you have decided, decided, if it is something that you feel, I need to seek the Lord. I need to seek the Lord for salvation. The Bible said, and he said it tonight, he said, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Okay, I'm going to do that. Get ready. Uh, he will not help you. And he will do lots of things to derail that. You can plan on it. You need the Lord's help. You need to pray for the Lord to help you and defend you and protect you. Seek the Lord. Keep knocking. Don't give up. Don't quit. Ask questions. Ask your parents questions. Ask me questions. Um, We're praying for you. Let's pray. Father, pray for Lord everyone here who is uh, not yet in a saving relationship with you. And I, when I say not yet, it's not that I know anything about the future. It's that I hope. I'm hopeful. Lord, it's a good place to be under the preaching of the word. It's uh, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. It would seem that there's a nearness there. You are near. You are with us. You are here in our midst. You walk amongst the golden lampstands of the church. You are present uh, where your word is proclaimed faithfully. Um, where there is a true church and a, a real legitimate church. It's not fake and not false. You are there. Your spirit dwells there. Uh, you are with Christians and you dwell inside of them. And so each of these young people, Lord, who may not know you yet, have you near. And Lord, help them to call upon you while you are near, to seek you while you may be found, to not procrastinate, to not put it off. Uh, to get serious about it now and to be ready for a marathon, not a sprint. To be ready for something that may take longer than, than they had hoped, than they had expected. But to know that it, there is a reward at the end of that marathon. Uh, there is an open door. And I pray that you would give them that perseverance and give them that hope and those the things that we have talked about tonight, whatever is true, whatever I said tonight that's true, um, reinforce it in their hearts and let the devil not snatch it out. Protect them from the devil, from the roaring lion to, who would seek to devour them, who would snatch the word from their hearts. 
who would do all kinds of things by way of distraction uh, to upset their efforts and their progress. Uh, Be merciful, Lord. Pour out your mercy and grace. Um, You who healed the leper, uh, who said, if you are willing, you can make me clean. We, We need to see you again as that one who is willing, who can make clean and who is willing to make clean. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's have a word of prayer as we get started here. Father, thank you for the opportunity to to gather and talk about what it means to be a Christian and talk about uh, seeking the Lord while they may be found. Pray that you would uh, make this uh, time beneficial uh, for all of us. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So... uh, any church, there's a mixture of kind of people, the state of their their souls. Um, basically, it comes down to two. You have in a church, uh, ordinarily, you have those who are saved, and you have those who are not. And um, so sometimes you speak to just the saved, or you address them on Sunday morning, and you say, we we Christians, we believers, we, 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 and yet you know that in the midst are those who are not born again at this point. You hope everyone you're looking out at across your audience, however small, if not born again, will one day be born again. But of course, no one knows that but God. In any case, it's important at times to uh, clarify the message for each group. So one of the things that a a pastor and a theologian from a long time ago in the 1600s, name was John Owen, said, is that the burden of preaching was to convince those who are Christians that they are and to convince those who are not that they're not. And in convincing them that they're not, of course, the goal is that they would be shaken out of a false sense of security and comfort and uh, not rely on things they may be relying on for salvation, things they shouldn't, in fact, be relying on. So uh, it's uh, important to know which, which group that you're in. So tonight, um, I want to talk a little bit about seeking the Lord and what to do if you're not yet born again. Uh, sometimes you have in churches people that... You know, they may think that they're Christians and then through processes of learning what it means to be saved, they come to the understanding, you know, I'm, I'm really not. That happened to me. Um, when I was 12 years old, I got concerned about going to hell. So I did what the church said you're supposed to do. I prayed to ask Jesus in my heart. I walked down an aisle on a Sunday morning service. I um, got baptized and then I tried to be a good boy. And that lasted for a couple of months, and then I pretty much drifted right back into the world and the other boys, and I began talking like they talked again, and just the same person that I was before, I just had a momentary vacation from that while I tried to be a good boy. And uh, that was worldly, nothing really changed about my life and my heart and anything like that. I couldn't have explained to you really the gospel and what it is and what it means and uh, really why I needed Jesus Christ. I, I knew nothing about why it was important that he live a perfect life. 
I knew nothing about why it was important. I, I knew why he died, sort of. Um, but I didn't really know what happened with respect to what happens when a person's saved. And I didn't know anything about being a new creature in Christ and what would then be expected if I was indeed a new creature, how my life might change. And so I want to make that clear uh, and not um, have that be a mystery. So uh, there's these things of, you know, what do you do? When you, when you are reared up in a more what we would call reformed uh, theology church or Calvinistic or whatever, you're, you're a smaller group than the, than the broader uh, you know, professing Christian church. Um, you believe certain things that other people don't believe. And in fact, you believe certain things that other people don't like at all. And one of the things that you believe is that Jesus didn't actually die for everyone. In the sense that his death is not a substitution for every single person in the world. And there's a reason for that is because if Jesus died in the place of every single person in the world out here, I mean, everybody you see, Jesus died for every one of them, meaning he went to the cross and he suffered the punishment from God that is deserved for every single person in the world, and he paid the price for them, he paid their debt, then everybody you see is walking around debt-free. Their punishment has been paid. Jesus suffered all of it. And so then the question is, well, then why are they going to hell if Jesus already paid for their punishment? And a lot of people say things like, well, because they haven't accepted it yet. Well, is accepting it a sin? Um, or, I mean, is not accepting it a sin? Yeah, that's a sin. Okay, did Jesus die for that sin? Uh, well, if he died for that sin, why would I be punished for that one either? You know, so you sort of have a problem. So as in a Reformed church, we don't believe that Jesus died for everyone and suffered the punishment for everybody in the entire world and their sins. Um, we believe that he died for his sheep. He laid down his life for the sheep. Well, that makes a lot of people uncomfortable because then it becomes, then salvation is really out of my hands. Because if Jesus died for me, and then I only have to do something, all I have to do is say, yeah, I'll take it. Um, I raise my hand. Um, or what prayer did you want me to say? Okay, I'll say the prayer. Um, you want me to walk down an aisle and sign a card? I can do that. Yeah. And you're saying that if I do that, I'll get heaven, right? Um uh, well, now, if you're talking about, no, Jesus didn't die for everybody like that, the ball is not in your court in that respect. It's not just a matter of making a decision to make this death of Jesus real for you. It's not just a matter of accepting something that's just kind of laying out there for you to grab, if you'll just grab it. And it's about God doing a special work in, in your heart. Then it becomes a little bit more difficult. Then it becomes an issue of, how do I know if he's done the work in my heart? Then it becomes not an issue of, did I accept Jesus? I don't know, does it say so in my Bible? Is there somewhere in the front where I mark down there? Yes, on such and such a day, on March, I don't know, 13th, 19th, whatever, I accepted Jesus in my heart, signed my name, there it is. Yeah, so I'm saved, because it says so right here. 
No, it's, it's a lot more complicated than that. It becomes a matter of, has God changed me? And that becomes a little bit more uncomfortable. And you can see that's one of the reasons why people don't like this. But this is why it's a little harder in Reformed church settings to discern, am I really a Christian or am I not? Because it's not a matter of, well, have you done this? Or have you done that? It's about, has he done something? And that is going to be a little more complicated or complex or it's going to be something that I have to look for. What, what does his work look like in a person then? When God saves a sinner, what does it look like? And do I look like that? And one of the biggest challenges for us and for children, and that's your primary who I'm talking to today is the children, the young people in the church, um, one of the biggest challenges is when you're raised in a Christian home, you're in church from the beginning. A lot of decisions are made for you. A lot of choices are made for you. And that's, that's just the way it should be. Uh, your parents bring you to church. They bring you to things. Maybe they have family worship at home. Uh, maybe you say your prayers at night before you go to bed. You might learn hymns. You might memorize scriptures. And you are very different than the rest of the world out there. Most of the children that we would go find if we went out to the public school here and we gathered up most of those children, they wouldn't look like that. They would be coming from homes where they're not having family worship. They're not memorizing the Bible. They don't know hymns. They probably go to church somewhere, but a very different church. And they probably dress quite a bit differently and they probably listen to different kinds of music. They probably watch things on television that your folks won't let you watch. Um, if you have TV at all, which I don't think anybody here does. <laughs> um, and so there's this difference between the way you look and the way they look. And then you come to church and it's taught we, we Christians and we um, believers and we thank you, Lord, for your saving work in our lives. And that we starts to sound like well, that's just everybody here, no questions asked. So that's why it's really important where we have to occasionally get a little uncomfortable and say things like, you know, you're, you're not born a Christian. It's, uh, you have to be born again. And so you don't become a Christian by virtue of at the womb. When you come out of your mother's womb... You know, at the hospital or the birth center or wherever, you don't come out and they stamp you as a Christian and you're a Christian from that point on. It doesn't work that way. What we are born as is sinners, wretches, uh, rebels, uh, people that don't like God, don't love Him. We're at enmity with Him. We don't want to do what He says. We don't want to live His life. And then if I'm raised in a Christian home, what happens is I'm... I'm that kind of a person. I don't like God. I don't want to follow His commandments. I don't love His Word. I don't read it. I don't pray. But my parents bring me to church and we say prayers together and they pray and I pray with them and we learn hymns and we, we act differently than the majority of other children out there and so we are different than them. And that can all work in a very negative way to persuade us, to help us self-deceive and make us think that we're, we're already there. 
we're already Christians when we're not. And so what really must happen is to be born again, not just be born. And then what is that? What does it actually mean to be born again? Um, it's something more than being born. <laughs> and it's something spiritual. It's the Holy Spirit coming down, descending, coming into me, and then making me like Jesus. And that is something that God is in charge of, not me. He's in control of that. We need to understand that the scripture says here, this is actually near the area where Nathan read earlier today, but uh, maybe the exact same verse actually. Isaiah 55, 6-7. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Well, that suggests that God is not just always around or that I've just got all the time in the world that there's no hurry, no rush. I, don't, I can seek the Lord later. Right now I'll have fun uh, while I'm young and when I'm an old man and can't do anything, maybe I'm stuck in a wheelchair and I can't do anything else anyway, um, then I'll seek the Lord. Now, seek the Lord while He may be found, meaning there, there's a time when He's not. Uh, call upon him while he is near. But what about if he's someday not near? So that's a warning to us. We can't just assume that God is like a butler. If I had that little bell that Abby rings at the top of the stairs, we could you know, ring the bell and then God would come running. And every time I rang the bell, Oh God, ding a ding a ding a ding come here. That's, uh, I would like to be saved now. I, God is not a butler. He's not somebody or maid that I can just say, oh, yoo-hoo, it's time, and, and make him come here and save me. Uh, seek him while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. How do you forsake your thoughts? Uh, you have to be changed. You're going to need help for that. Let him return to the Lord, and he will have compassion on him. There is the good news. There's the encouragement. For he will abundantly pardon. So what we want to get at tonight here, and just a brief time we'll spend together, is if God is in control of salvation, is there anything I can do? Or am I just, do I just twiddle my thumbs waiting? You know, do I just basically say, well, I don't know. I guess if the Lord wants to save me, he'll save me. And I don't know if I'm elect or not, so... Maybe it's just never going to happen. I don't know. So there's really not any point in doing anything. Um, that's really not what the Bible says. Um, so what do you do? Uh, if you're supposed to repent of your sin, meaning you hate it and forsake it, what do you do if you can't repent? You know, what are you supposed to do? Like if someone said to you, repent of that love of chocolate that you have, uh, could you do that? Could you just go, okay, now. I hate chocolate now. Would it be that simple? No, because you love it. And I do too. And anything that you really love, you can't just simply go, okay, now I'm going to decide to start hating what I've always loved. And now I'm going to start loving what I've always hated. You know, I don't like cooked spinach. Sorry if that is your favorite dish or anything, but I, I just never have. 
Um, it almost makes me gag. Uh, I cannot make my taste buds like that. I can make myself eat it. <laughs> I mean, I can, I can force it down there and chase it down with something real quick, but I can't make myself love it. And in the same way, if I don't really love God, I can't make myself love Him. And if I love sin, if I love me and I'm all about me and I'm very self-centered, I can't make myself just not be by snapping my fingers or just making a decision at one moment to do it. So then, so the question is, what do you do then? How are you supposed to repent if you can't repent? How are you supposed to love the Lord if you don't? And what does it mean to seek the Lord? So let's consider a few things that you should know, and then we'll talk about a few things that you should do and not do um, as you're seeking the Lord, and I hope that you are. Um, the last time we had an evangelistic service, I talked about hell. You might remember I read from the famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, and the purpose of that sermon is to make people wide awake, is to like smelling salts. You know? um, okay, I'm awake. Um, that's what sinners in the hands of an angry God does. And uh, you may still not be awake yet, but I hope you are. And this, this is for people who are awake. This is like, okay, I'm awake. Uh, the consequences of not being right with the Lord, the consequences of not being reconciled to Him and being at peace with Him are dreadful, just awful, unbearable. And yet that's my future as long as I am outside of Christ. So I'm awake. Now what? What do I do now? Uh, tonight is about, well, what do you do now? Well, first of all, things you should know. You cannot know whether you're elect or not. You can't know if you are chosen by God to be saved. That's a secret that God has in the Lamb's Book of Life, and no one gets to peek at that book until they're in heaven, I guess. Nobody knows. So, it cannot be the basis for your instructions. It can't be the basis for what you're supposed to do and not do. You can't get a peek at the book and go, oh yeah, I'm in there. Okay, I'll seek the Lord then. Or, no, I don't find my name there. No, forget it. I might as well just live for sin then because that's my future's hell anyway. Might as well enjoy this life as best I can. Or, you know, I might as well just end it now. Well, it can't be the basis of your decisions because you can't know that information. God doesn't expect you to know that information. He's not going to share that information. The passage says, seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. He doesn't say, if your name is written in the Lamb's book of life, then seek the Lord because then it will be worthwhile for you. He doesn't say that. He nowhere instructs us that way. You can't know whether Jesus died for you in particularly. So that can't be the basis of your faith. You can't say, well, you know, like a preacher might say, Jesus died for you. Do you believe that? And you say, yeah, I believe it. Okay, you're saved then. That's not what is meant by the gospel and what it means to believe the gospel. You can't know whether Jesus died for you or not, and it can't be the basis of your faith. What you are to believe in is that the blood of Jesus Christ is sufficient to make you a sinner white as snow and to wash away all your sins. You don't concern yourself. Did Jesus die for me in particular though? No, that's not your concern. 
that you can't be expected to know that and therefore you can't be expected to believe it. What you believe is what the scripture says is that he is able to save to the uttermost everyone who comes to God through him. That's Hebrews 7.25. He is able to save all who come to him. And that includes you. He is able to save you. And his blood is so precious in the sight of God and so virtuous that it can wash away all the black stains of your sin, no problem whatsoever. That is what you are to believe. You are to believe that Jesus is willing to save anyone who comes to him. Um, Matthew 8, 1-3 seems to be written for those who say, well, I know he can save me, I just don't know that he wants to. Well, there was a, a man who had leprosy, you know, this skin disease that was awful and it made you so you couldn't uh, interact with people and you had to be uh, sheltering in place and you had to be, um, so, you know, quarantined and in lockdown all the time and, you know, I mean, it was about like having covid Matthew 8, 1 through 3, Jesus came down from the mountain, large crowds followed him, and a leper came to him and bowed down before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. Now, lepers would ceremonially at least defile anything they touched. So leprosy, a leper touches things, now you've got to cleanse it. If I had leprosy, in the Old Testament system, if I had leprosy and I touched this podium, uh-oh, now that's defiled. I just communicated my leprosy to the podium. Now we have to do a cleansing thing with the podium. If I go touch you, well, now you're unclean. So that's why I have to stay away from everybody and, you know, cover my mouth and say, unclean, unclean, and make sure everybody clears the way so I don't defile anybody. Well, here's Jesus touching the leper. Yet, who's, who changed whom? Did Jesus become defiled by the leper? No, the leper was cleansed by Jesus. Jesus has more cleansing power and virtue in him than you have defiling power in your sin. And he is willing. He was willing. The question was asked. I know you can't. If you're willing... You can make me clean. I know you can. It's just a matter of if you're willing. And what did he say to him? I am willing. Jesus came to call sinners to repentance. He gave invitations to those who are heavy and weary laden. And think about being heavy with sin, weary laden with sin. Who's read Pilgrim's Progress here? Or had it read to you? Yeah? So a Christian has this huge burden on his back, right? And what does that burden represent? Sin, right. It's, certain, it's bothering him. It's weighing him down. And that's his big problem. He's got to get rid of that somehow. And where did he get rid of it? At the cross, right. At the cross of Jesus. That's where sin is taken away, taken care of. Um, Jesus said things like, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink and I will give him water that will be like a well springing up inside of him and he'll never thirst, referring to the Holy Spirit. Um, 
You cannot find an example in the, in the New Testament, in the, in the Gospels. Think of this. Can you think of an instance, any time, where someone came to Jesus for mercy? Heal my leprosy. Heal my daughter. My demon-possessed son, they keep throwing him in the fire and in the water. Um, I can't, uh, you know, somebody who's mute, somebody who's deaf, somebody who's lame, somebody who's a paralytic, um, somebody who is uh, got whatever problem that they had. And you think of an example where anybody came up to him and he said, no, I'm not helping you. The Canaanite woman, did he help her though? He didn't help her? He did, right. But yeah, you're right. When she came to him, she said, my, my daughter is cruelly demon-possessed, and he was putting her off. He was ignoring her. Then she kept after it, and he was like, it's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. I'm like, wow, that's tough language. Um, that sounds like a no. In fact, it sounds like a hard no, doesn't it? But she, what was her response? Her response was, yes, Lord, but even the dogs get the crumbs under the table. And he said, woman, because of your faith, uh, your daughter is healed. And so even she got mercy. It wasn't really a rejection, was it? It looked like one. It sounded like one. It didn't look very promising. And that's something you need to keep in mind. You may pray to the Lord to save you and get nothing. You may hear nothing. Usually you don't hear anything. But you may just get no response. You may just be like, I don't know if he heard me or not. I, I, I don't feel any different. Nothing happened. I seem to be the same person I was before. And yet... What we know from an instance like this is that Jesus sometimes seems to be disinterested. Sometimes the, the answer seems to be no. He's testing you. Just like he was that Canaanite woman. He wants to see, are you, how much do you want this? Do you really want to be saved? How important is it to you? How long are you willing to seek me for this? Time is short. This is some another thing you need to know. You're young and it's, boy, it's hard to believe this. Time is short. It's really hard to believe this. You just, you're like, you know, I'm not an old man. I'm not an old woman. I got my whole life before me. I mean, death is the farthest thing off for me. I, I won't die for a long, long, long time. Nobody knows that actually though, right? I mean, we do know of people, I'm not trying to scare you. I'm just trying to be honest with you that nobody knows for sure how long of a life they have. You know, right out in front of the church here a few years ago, I was in my office there and I heard this loud sound. Well, what was that? Uh, but I didn't get up and check anything. I just couldn't figure out what it was. It was just loud noise um, outside. And then all of a sudden I started to notice that the traffic was slowing down on the highway. I could see cars lined up along the highway out there. I was like... You know what that's going on here. Um, so I walked out of my office. I went outside. I went out, looked out the window. The I heard sirens too. By that point, there the ambulance was out there. There was police cars. There was a car that was mangled, and there were there was somebody out on the pavement. It was January. It was freezing cold. 
they had somebody out on the pavement they were giving CPR to, and then there was two people in the back of a car that they couldn't yet get out. And uh, uh, a young girl of the age of 14, 15 years old, um, and a boy from China both died that day. He was probably 15 or 16. And they were getting ready to turn into this business right here to pick up their dad uh, from work across the, across the way. And uh, as they were getting ready to turn, behind them was another person in a truck. And she was approaching fast on them, but she was looking in her rearview mirror at a semi that was bearing down on her. So she was kind of distracted by the semi behind her. And she just missed the fact that this car in front of her was stopped at the middle of the road trying to turn and bashed right into the rear end of them and uh, killed those two people in the back. Uh, that was not on their plans that day. They hadn't planned that. It was very sad. But that, that can happen. It can happen much earlier. We don't know how much time we have. So from the very earliest days of where you're, you're even thinking about these things at all, now is the time to be seeking. For whatever reason, children generally don't start taking that seriously until they're around 12 or 13. I don't know why that is, but it's pretty common. And it may have something to do with just the development of the mind and the conscience and the sense of you know life and the soul and afterlife. Things start to you know, compute. Children start to think about these things and things start to kind of come together maybe. But it can happen much earlier. There's an amazing story in, uh, in Jonathan Edwards, you know, who, who did that sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And the little girl's name is Phoebe Bartlett. And I would recommend you to read that if you can. I can loan it to you if you'd like. And she's four years old. And she knows her catechism front and back already at age four. And she's weeping about her sin. And she's concerned about being saved and her parents weren't giving her any quick fixes. They were just encouraging her to pray. And she went from being very agitated and concerned and burdened about her sins to having peace and joy. And she continued on for many years as, as uh, became a young you know, girl of seven, eight, nine, became a young teenage girl, became an adult woman. And they, they were able to see this. Now, this was a genuine work of God in her life. But they were all amazed because it was so unusual, so uncommon for a girl of that age, any child of that age, to be concerned about their soul. Um, but this, this text, Isaiah 55, 6-7, tells us that now is the time. Not, not later, not someday, now. Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. James 4, 13 through 17, you know, come now you who say today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit, yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Oh, God tests the faith of those who call on Him. You might remember this morning, 
me reading from Luke 11, 5 through 13. Do you remember me reading about the guy that comes at midnight and he starts knocking at the door and he wants bread? Hey, um, friend, I have a friend with me who came from a journey and he needs food and I don't have any. I, I want some bread. And this, his friend says to him, I'm in bed and my children are with me and basically I don't want to get up and go away is <laughs> essentially the, the, uh, the essence of his response. Beat it. <laughs> you know, it's midnight. Um, I'm in bed. Can't help you. And he just doesn't quit. He just keeps knocking. Well, you know, if somebody comes to your door at night to your house and you cannot get away from the sound, you can't turn your sound machine up high enough to block it out, um, <laughs> then you're probably going to go to that door and you're uh, just to get them to shut up. And so you're going to go open that door. And that story, amazingly, is told to us by Jesus to encourage us to pray and to seek and to ask and to knock and to keep knocking with God. And the idea is that if you keep doing this with God... he's going to get up get up and come and open the door knock and it shall be opened to you I didn't make up that story I didn't make up that analogy that metaphor of knocking Jesus gave that to us he's the one who told us and at the end he said you know if your father knows how to give good gifts to you you know you ask him for a piece of bread he doesn't give you a stone instead of a piece of bread and then laugh at you. Let's see you take a bite out of that. <laughs> yeah, He doesn't do that. If you ask for an egg, he doesn't give you a scorpion. Here, here's your egg. Whoa! Um, he'll let it bite you. He doesn't do that. No, he gives you what you need. He's, he's happy to give you good gifts that he sees that you need. Now, if you're like one of these spoiled children who's always asking for things that are not good, for you, you know, maybe you want your, you know, fifth candy bar of the day. Uh, Dad will probably say no, <laughs> or Mom will. Um, it might not get to five even. It might not be one, I don't know. But, you know, it, the point is, is that, yeah, he'll say no, but that will also be for your good. He doesn't want your teeth rotting out and you not being interested in supper and having something nutritious and so forth. So if you come to your own father and say can I have this good thing he's not going to give you a bad thing in place of it and Jesus' point is, is that God the father is so much better he's so much more good than our earthly fathers are he's not going to do that either and he will give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him that's the kind of thing that you are to think about not am I elect or not or is my name in the Lamb's book of life or not? You just don't know. You can't know that. But you can know that he says to seek and ask and knock and gives a promise to those who do. You need to know this. Your motivations, until you are saved, your motivations are always going to be selfish. Uh, wanting to get out of hell is a selfish thing, but it's an understandable thing. And it's all you've got. 
You should do things for the love of God and for the glory of God. Everything that you do, you should do it because you want to honor Him. But you know what? Until you're a Christian, until you've been changed by God, it's never that. It's always just about you. But God knows this. He knows what you're capable of and what you're not capable of. When He says to seek Him, even though you're dead in sin and lost and you don't love God and you're not doing things for His glory like you should, He knows this. He knows that's all you can do. God doesn't expect something of you that you can't produce. See, when sometimes when we talk about God's law that He doesn't lower His standards, you know, the standard is love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, and all of your strength. That's the standard. And God's not going to lower that down here and say, okay, I see you can't do that, but I really want you to pass this test. So we're going to lower it way down here and we'll just say, just love me once. Will you? And they go, oh, I can do that. I'll step over that one. You know, like those limbo bars that they hold out. and You know, you can, you can go under it when it's like this, but way down there you can't. God's not going to lower his standards in that respect. But what I'm trying to say here is is that he's not going to expect something of you that you can't on your own provide. Don't let your selfishness be uh, something that you think will keep you out of the kingdom. You are expected to not want to burn forever in hell. And all you've got is the selfish desire to escape that. But God knows that. Okay, those are some things to know. Let's look at a few things to do. If you're earnest, you're sincere, you're, you're serious about seeking God for salvation, then there's certain things that should change. Number one is you, do, you have to stop pretending to be a Christian if that's what you're doing. You can't pretend to be one before you are one. A lot of times the first things that people need to do before they're saved is to get unsaved. They need to quit playing the game. They need to quit trying to take a shortcut and be treated as Christian even though there's no evidence that they are. Um, If you made a profession of faith in the past, but you know it was a false profession, come clean. Admit that you're not. Tell your family. Tell your parents. Ask them to pray for your salvation. Be prepared. Um, This would apply generally, I think, Elsewhere, but you know, let's say that somebody was hearing this and they're in a church somewhere and the pastor has heard their profession of faith and accepted it just kind of at face value. But here you have a young person, a young boy or a young girl, and they're like, I, I'm listening to you now and I'm not, a, I'm not really a Christian. And so then they go and they try to tell their pastor that, no, I, I'm, I'm not actually a Christian. I was pretending, and I know that I'm not. That pastor may be irritated. He may not want to hear this. He may say things like, oh, come on now. Um, you're being too hard on yourself, and try to talk you out of it. And it may be more about him and his own uh, irritation that he was fooled than it is actually your soul. So you have to be prepared for things like that. Um, If you're older and you're in a position where you're teaching a Bible study, stop teaching immediately if you're not saved. Unbelievers should not be teaching the Bible. It's only going to deceive you further if you keep teaching the Bible. 
No, everyone thinks you're a Christian and you're playing along, you're playing a game. And you shouldn't be teaching that. You should be on the other end, listening, not teaching. You shouldn't be the fountain of information to people. You shouldn't go around acting like you're wise and like you're the one, the go-to guy. And the people should seek you for answers. You need answers. You should be the one seeking, not the one giving and distributing and coming from a position of strength and, and knowledge. Uh, many people will conclude that you're a Christian. They'll give you the benefit of the doubt. But it's up to you to go forth and say, no, I, I'm not. Please pray for me. So unless and until you're a Christian, don't present yourself as one. Don't call yourself one. It will only deceive others and you will only deceive yourself. Be careful about public prayer. In general, avoid it. Even the best of public prayers are fraught with difficulty. There is danger for me as the pastor of this church in public prayer. There is always the danger of that I'm just going to get up here and I'm going to be talking to you, all you guys, but I'm not actually talking to God. There's the danger that I'm going to be performing for you and trying to sound really spiritual for you, to impress you, but that I'm not actually talking to God as a humble beggar sinner before God and well, yeah, you guys are here, but that's really not what's important. Really, it's I'm talking to God. But if you don't know the Lord, you need to be really careful about that. It's not inherently wrong to pray publicly at corporate prayer meetings, but it is fraught with temptations and the devil is shrewd. So if you do not know the Lord and you want to pray publicly, I have to think, well, why, why do I want to pray publicly if I don't know the Lord? Am I just trying to impress other people? Then you should probably begin like, Lord, uh, you know I don't yet know you. Please, please save me. But I am thinking about this friend of mine who has this problem, and I pray that you would help her. And then just let your words be few. Don't say a lot. Otherwise, it's self-deception. So pretending is one of the biggest dangers that there is. It's one of the, the biggest problems. When you're raised up in a Christian home, it's very easy just to slide into sort of Christianity. I'm, I'm a Christian. Without ever going through this process of, wait a minute, I'm, I'm lost. I'm dead in sin. I'm an enemy of God. This is what the Bible calls me. Yes, I'm raised in a Christian home. Yes, my life is different because of that in some outward ways. Yes, my parents protect me from certain things that other parents don't protect their children from. But that's not being born again. And we learn how to pray. And I hear my parents' prayer. And kids are imitators, right? We, we can imitate stuff. We hear people talk a certain way and we start talking talk like that. And we, we start imitating them. You know, and you can imitate people's prayers too. You can say, okay, how's I, I see how they do it, I see the words that they use. I, I can do that. I can pray with the same kind of tone. I can use the same kind of terms that I hear my dad using. I hear I can use the same kinds of vocabulary words and, and terms to form a prayer, and I can sound just like him. Be careful. Be careful about that. Stop throwing rocks at God. 
According to Scripture, this is another thing to do. According to Scripture, before we know the Lord, and this was certainly the case with me, so I'm, you know, it's just the case for everybody. I just want to make sure you know it was for me too. We're at enmity with God. We don't like Him and we're throwing rocks at Him. Um, in, in a way, not literally rocks. But you have to put down your rocks. Your enemy will never be, will never take you seriously as though you want to cease fire. He'll never take you seriously as long as you're throwing rocks. Um, Lord, I want you to save me. You know, um, throw another rock. He's never going to take you seriously. Is God supposed to believe that you want to be reconciled to Him while you're throwing rocks? Examples of rock throwing are openly quarreling about His Word. Undermining biblical teaching to other people. Complaining about the way God has ordered your life. Complaining about the fact that He hasn't saved you yet. Um, Older... If you were older, we'd talk about fornication, skipping church, uh, drunkenness, all, you know, all these kinds of things, these behaviors. They're ways of throwing rocks at God. Idolatry is enmity with God, according to the Bible. James 4, 4 says, You adulteresses do not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God. So if I'm friends with the world, I'm hostile toward God. That's what it says. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. You know, if while I was trying to win Catherine to hopefully be my wife, if I was going around and flirting with all sorts of other girls, would she take me seriously that I really wanted her? Or would she look and go, doesn't look like you want me. Looks like you just want somebody. Or maybe you want several people. Maybe you want several girls. To show interest in you. I'm just one of them. So I need to quit flirting with the world and not uh, be pursuing after lots of other idols while I'm seeking the Lord. What do you give your heart to? What consumes your time, your money, your energy? As children, you know, they're. you've only got so much to work with, but there's, there's, you can make an idol out of anything. I mean, you can make an idol out of a game. You can make an idol out of a hobby. What do you give your heart to? Um, in the Old Testament, there were times when they were told to put away the foreign gods that were amongst you. You want to get serious about serving the Lord? Put away your foreign gods. Put it away. Repent of outward sins. Correct any wrongs that you can. You can't change your heart. You can't make your heart love God. We've talked about that. But, you know, if you've stolen something from someone else, return it. If you've lied about something, confess that it's a lie. Come clean. You can actually do that. If there's something that you know you should stop doing, stop doing it. If there's something you know you should be doing, start doing it. If you know you should be reading the Bible, well, read it. If you know how to read and you've gotten through reading lessons enough to where you can read, then you can read the Bible. You have that ability. Why aren't you reading it? If you're young and you're under your parents' authority, ask your parents if there's anything they think you should correct, any issues that you are showing that they have been concerned about for you. If they tell you that you're not very helpful around the house, 
then ask their forgiveness and start helping around the house. If they tell you that you're argumentative and you're always arguing, then stop the quarreling. You know, we can keep our mouths shut. You come into a place where suddenly everybody's, like you walk into church maybe on Sunday morning and the church is already going and everybody's quiet and they're in prayer. Suddenly you walk in, you're quiet. See, you can be quiet. It's possible. You have that power over your mouth. So we're not suggesting that you can change the hatred in your heart toward God, but you can stop the outward motions of your enemy. Uh, Quit firing away at God. Quit throwing rocks. Uh, When one army surrenders to another, it is not usually because they love their conquering enemy, but it's due to the fact that the war is lost and that those who put down their weapons are usually treated nicer than those who keep shooting. And that's the way you should really deal with God. This is a war with Him you can't win, but you need to put down your weapons. If someone, if I'm a big mouth and I'm always talking, blah, 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 and someone comes up and puts a gun to my head and says, shut up. I bet I could learn to shut up. I bet I could quit talking. I just need to be motivated, don't I? Uh, given the right amount of motivation, I can actually be quiet. I can zip my lip. And what I'm getting at here is that there are certain things that we can stop doing and should stop doing that are aspects of enmity with God. They're like throwing rocks at Him that we should stop, even though our heart is not yet changed. Um, divorce the world. Um, write a certificate of divorce out to the world. If you have worldly friends, lose them. They don't want to do anything but pull you into the mire in which they wallow. They don't want you to leave, but you have to leave them. If they are content to go to hell and they want you to join them, they're not your friends, are they? Ditch them and expect them to mock you as as you do. Think about Samson and Delilah. He wasn't very smart, was he? This keeps hanging around Delilah. And he's already seen, he already has proof that she's not got his interests at heart. That she's not trying to help him and be assist him. She's trying to capture him. And he knows it. And he keeps flirting with her. He keeps hanging around with Delilah. Keeps consorting with Delilah. And we know how that ended in the end, right? He lost. You have to put away the Delilahs of your life. Confess your sins. Here's another thing to do. Confess your sins. Think about ways you've sinned. Confess things to the Lord that you need to confess to Him, but also to other people, to your parents, to your siblings, teachers, employers, whatever. Humble yourself Confess your sins, ask their forgiveness, and be prepared. Sometimes when you ask people for forgiveness, they actually turn it against you. They're like, well, yeah, about time you finally confess to that, you jerk. You know, I mean, some people do that. That can't be your concern. Your concern has to be you, not how they respond to you. 
not even whether they say I forgive you just that you just need to do it you need to be resolved to not argue with them if you come to confess something and then they say something back that wasn't very nice don't get drug into an argument now and start then now defending yourself if you're defending yourself you're not really apologizing there are certain things you don't need to confess to people. Like, don't come up to people and say, I just want you to know I've always hated your guts. Um, like, you're the, you're, you bother me more than I think anybody else in this world bothers me. And that's, uh, I just really had issues with you. Uh, don't confess things like that to people. They don't need to know that. Um, you know, you can just say, you know, I, I haven't treated you well. Something like that. Or, I haven't been kind to you. And I've been spoken kindly to you. But don't say things like, yeah, I, I think you're the worst person I've ever met and I've just hated your guts. And uh, please forgive me. <laughs> That's a little TMI. Pray for salvation. This is the, another thing to do. And this is in a booklet. You can take, these are back there on the, the little book stand. You're welcome to take these home with you and go through these and look more in depth. I'm skimming over some things here, but you may be thinking, I don't know, what did he say now? Just take it home with you, and then you can look at it. Um, pray for salvation. Um, that's kind of obvious, but, you know, remember your prayers don't have to be long. We have warnings in the Bible about praying too long. We don't have, war- we don't have warnings about praying too short. Um, we don't want to engage in meaningless repetition like the Gentiles, but on the other hand, prayer is going to be repetitious to some degree. You know, when we're talking about meaningless repetition, we're thinking of like the rosary. Um, Hail, Mary, Mother of Grace, blah, 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 blah. I don't know how it goes, actually. But it's just repeated over and over and over again. Buddhists have a mantra that they repeat over and over and over again. And they think they'll be heard because they of their many prayers because they repeat it X number of times. That's the way the unbelieving mind thinks of. But Jesus says, no, let your words be few. Um, says that in Ecclesiastes. And he warns about long prayers, not about short ones. And But know that you're going to be saying things, there's only so many different ways you can come up with to say, please save me. God is not expecting you to come up with these dramatically creative ways every day that you say it to come up with new ways to say, save me. But it's, it's frustrating. It's frustrating because you feel it's boring and you feel like I'm saying the same thing I said yesterday. What's there new to say? But don't be discouraged by that. God knows that it's going to be repetitious just like knocking is repetitious. You know, knocking at the door. He says, knock and I'll be open to you. Well, this is repetitious, isn't it? There's nothing creative about that. I don't need to go... come up with a new rhythm the next day and so forth. I don't need to do that. God doesn't expect me to do that. Read the Bible. I've talked about that. This is simple. It's kind of obvious. But in Romans 10 17, Paul says faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. So we need to hear this and to hear it, read it. And it's challenging. You should pray before you read it because the devil is going to come. He does this with me. You start to read and all of a sudden your mind is daydreaming about this and that and this over here. and That's not an accident. That's spiritual warfare. That's, I believe it is, the devil. 
So pray, Lord, help me to read this. Help me to understand it. Help me to get stuff out of it. Speak to me through this. Don't let me get distracted. You should pray that before you read. Don't try to read huge, long uh, passages of Scripture at a time. You don't want to make this harder than it already is. There's enough challenges as it is with this. Uh, Don't bite off more than you can chew. You know what I mean? Um, You may need to just go with one chapter a day at first. You know, and then maybe later you can build up to more than that. Or if there's certain days where you're like, no, I'm really, I've got to keep reading. Great. But don't try to um, impress God. Don't try to impress other people. Just try to take a little bit and think about what it's saying. Ask yourself questions as you read the Bible that will help. Like, rather than just reading a passage of Scripture and, okay, I read it. Check. Read it with a certain thing in mind. Like, what does this tell me about God? What is that passage? What does is, what is Psalm 35 tell me about God? What kinds of things can I see in this passage about God? What does it tell me about me as a human being or as a sinner? Is there something about Christ that I might see in this passage that it might tell me about Jesus as well? Is there something I should do that it tells me to do So with that in mind, um, attend church. And of course, when you're young and your parents are bringing you there anyway, it's not like you get a choice, right? They just bring you to church. They don't ask you if you want to go. I remember asking my mom when I was a kid. I don't know what age it was. Do I have to go to church? And she said, yes. Okay. (laughs) So I went to church. But I didn't want to. I wanted to stay home and watch TV. But as you get older and maybe you grow up, you know, beware of, uh, and hopefully you found the Lord by then. But just to speak to even people that are older, we only get 52 Sundays a year. That's really not a lot of, of God to ask us for. And beware of the tendency to nibble away at them. You know, it's just one Sunday. Just one Sunday for 4-H. It's just one Sunday for the, whatever, philanthropic club. It's just one Sunday for the Red Hat Society. It's whatever. I mean, the devil is trying to nibble away from the outsides and, and get it narrower and narrower and narrower until there's nothing left. So you have to defend it. It has to be important. Um, be on the alert for Satan. And we'll close with this. The Bible says in 1 Peter 5, 8, Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So that's serious stuff. That's it's not a laughing matter. He's a roaring lion. He doesn't like you. He's not going to help you seek God. He's not going to say, oh, I see this young man here wants to seek God. I'll see what I can do to help him out. Oh, he'll help you out. Yeah, he'll, help, he'll help derail the whole thing. I have had people come to church and they came in here and they sat down. People I didn't know at all and I still don't know them. But they came as visitors and you know, I'm not a pastor that goes to the door and makes people get past me to get to their car. Um, You're going to have to shake my hand and talk to me. Um, Now, 
I'm not saying that's why all pastors do that. They can just be friendly and just wanting to greet people. So I'm just saying I, I don't, I'm not back there. And if people want to escape quickly, they can. <laughs> Without me, you know, running them down. So I've had people that have come into the church and they've, they've come up to me and said, that was a really good sermon. Oh, that was just really spoke to me. And I really feel like I found my church. I'll see you next Sunday. And, and I'm like, okay, wow. Um, and then they're not, I never see them again. And I was like, what was that? I mean, is that just a total lie? Um, I didn't make you say that to me. You know, I wasn't like at the door going, <laughs> you got to see you next Sunday, right? And then like they felt they had to say it. It wasn't like that. They, they sought me out to say it. I think actually what happened was they really thought that they would be back. I think they really thought that, yeah, they were, this is, that there was something here they heard that resonated and they, they thought, yeah, I, this is where I want to be. This is what I've been looking for. But they have no idea what they're into. They have no idea what they're getting into. They have no idea who they're tangling with. The devil is still in control of their life and he is, this is not going to happen. He's just laughing. Oh, we'll see whether you're here next Sunday or not. And the next Sunday, they're sick. Or the next Sunday, I don't know, somebody from the family calls. Hey, you know, I really need you to do such and such. Or the next Sunday, something happens that they had not anticipated. And then they they don't come that Sunday. And then one more Sunday, oh, nope, something happened then too. And then pretty soon they're out of the habit already. They, They didn't even start a habit. And now they're embarrassed. I don't know. I'm just trying to put myself in their thinking. Now maybe they're embarrassed. I said I was going to be back. And now the guy's going to think I'm an idiot. I just think it's the devil. He snatches the word out of people's hearts. And so we have to be on the alert. That's what it says. Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Don't expect this to be easy. If you have decided, decided, if it is something that you feel, I need to seek the Lord. I need to seek the Lord for salvation. 